0: Welcome to Wonk Life Balance, a podcast from the Michigan League for Public Policy. Wonk Life Balance is a space for comfortable conversations about policy, where families, advocates, and policy wonks can coexist and talk about ways to build a better future. I'm Laura Ross with the Michigan League for Public Policy, and I'm so excited for this inaugural episode of Wonk Life Balance. We've pulled together a strong panel of experts and advocates to share ideas about how schools in Michigan can be strengthened so all kids can thrive. Kelsey Perdue, the Kids Count in Michigan Project Director, will be joined by parents and advocates Kyle Lim and Tamara Richardson. Kelsey has always been dedicated to building better communities for everyone, and we are so fortunate that she came to work at the League in 2019 as our Kids Count Project Director. Kelsey oversees data and advocacy work to increase economic security and racial equity for children across Michigan. Kelsey, we're really glad you're here today for our premiere episode. The Kids Count in Michigan project is so important to kids, families, and policymakers in Michigan. So I'm hoping we can get started just by hearing a little bit more about the project and this year's new data book.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you for having the Kids Count Project as the first guest and spotlight on the New Leagues podcast. Uh, so a little bit about Kids Count. Kids Count in Michigan has been around for about 30 years, but it's part of a national initiative to measure the well being of children and then to use that information to do something about it. So the measurement comes through data and dissemination of that data and research and the do something about it is uh, working with community partners working with lawmakers really for the purpose of policy change that improves the lives for children and their families. I say children and their families on purpose because we know that in order to improve lives for children, we have to also address barriers and challenges that their families face. So that's a little bit about the Kids Count Project in Michigan. The project produces the Kids Count in Michigan data book about every other year. And so in 2021, that was released in June. And so that overlooks child well-being in the state across many domains, education, economic security, health and safety, family and community. It is jam-packed with data, with information, with context, but also with key findings and policy recommendations that stem from, from those findings. This year's book also includes some advocacy tools, tips to influence the state's priorities, how you might use the data book to move forward your work using research and policy change.
0: And, you know, we know there are a lot of important issues to cover that are part of the data book and part of the project. But today we really wanted to drill into some specifics. Can you tell us a little bit about what we might be focusing on today in this conversation?
1: Yes. So as I look at all the information that's in this year's data book, four key areas came to mind. Those four areas are ones that I think have a lot of potential to see movement in in our legislature and in policy change and ones that community partners and residents and advocates are really excited about. um, And there's a lot of energy and need around. The first is the need to invest in childcare to make it more available uh, and affordable for everyone to make sure that there is affordable housing and opportunity rich communities to make sure that we can expand healthcare to reach all kids. And then finally, to make sure that our schools are both adequately and equitably funded. And so that last one is what I am ready to talk about today. And I have two really, really dope people with me. They are both advocates, they are both parents, and they both have a lot of energy and expertise around the issue of schools and education for kind of the whole learning continuum. So I'm really excited to bring on and introduce Kyle Lim and Tamara Richardson. So first, I'll talk to you a little bit about Kyle. Kyle is a strategist for the Urban Core Collective here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he's the principal of Lim Consulting Incorporated. He's a native Singaporean and is deeply passionate about supporting communities of color, organizing for for social change. Kyle has experience in building organizational coalitions to support grassroots movements against gentrification, police violence, and education justice. He strongly believes in the power of radical imagination that allows communities and organizations to find solutions to problems outside of dominant ways of thinking and doing. So that's Kyle. Hey, Kyle.
2: Hey, Kelsey. Thank you for having me.
1: For sure. Thank you for being here. And then secondly, we have Tamara Richardson. Tamara is a parent liaison with the Great Start Parent Coalition, where she coordinates parent coalition meetings that offer parents and caregivers valuable information for their parenting journey. She is very involved in the Great Start Collaborative Network. She serves on the executive committee as co-chair of the Help Me Grow Kent Advisory Board and other parent work groups. She has been instrumental in securing grants that help shape the parent-focused work of the coalition. And she is a trained facilitator for Kofi community organizing and family issues, a training that empowers parents to be even greater leaders. Both Tamara and Kyle are married and have kids. Kyle is a husband and father of a one-year-old. Tamara is a wife and a mom to four kids between the ages of eight and 14. Hey, Tamara, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you so much, Kelsey, for having
1: me. So as I said, these are experts today. These are parents. These are advocates. They have been doing this work and they have a lot to share. So today we're just going to be talking about their experiences in education and what have they seen? What do they think? And later on, I'll tie it back to kind of the data book, some data and some policy recommendations for those who who want to see that connection. So. I'm curious, you know, you both are parents. You both at some point chose to to engage deeply in this work, right, around advocacy, maybe after becoming a parent, maybe before. Can you quickly tell us about, you know, what was your entry point into advocacy? Was there a a moment that kind of snapped you and said, I need to do X, Y, and Z? Just can you share a little bit about that with us?
2: I think my entry point (laughs) into education advocacy was probably just through uh, a mentee of mine. Uh, he was going to a school and it wasn't a public school necessarily. It, it was a, He was a, attending a private school. So they have very different contexts there. Predominantly white school. He's a, a black, black kid and got accused of stealing. And the way in which the system mounted itself to, against him uh, without any proof of, uh, of the fact to me was sort of my entry point into like, okay, schools are not just these safe spaces for students that we think of. And we actually need to be as community members, parents, mentors, caregivers, whatever, very much engaged and present for our children's educational experiences in an advocacy kind of role, because um, I don't believe that schools are just benevolent, caring institutions for a lot of students, particularly for poor students, for students of color, students with other forms of marginalized identities. So that was sort of my big entry point was just a personal encounter that I had uh, navigating a, an issue that uh, a mentee of mine was having in, in his school.
3: Uh, thank you for sharing. So my introduction into this work started with my daughter being a micro preemie. She was born at 23 weeks, my second daughter. And so because of that and the different issues she had, she qualified for an IAP, which allowed her to be part of Head Start. And so then I joined the Head Start Policy Council and I learned about Great Start and some of the work then, but didn't join right away. And then once she was out, I saw a flyer talking about the different meetings Free dinner, free childcare, <laughs> a night that I did not have to cook. <laughs> so we went. So that was kind of the entry point there for me into some of the work that I'm doing now. Awesome. So, both a combination of your own personal experiences and those of your family
1: and those of your friends and your mentors, right? I experience, I see something I don't like. For me, my entry point was I started my career working in education, working in pre K and then in middle school. And I love those kids, I loved what I did. But at some point I remember thinking I could work 24 hours a day, seven days a week and it will only go so far because there's some real structural issues in the learning conditions of this school based off of funding and school culture and leadership and things like that. And so that was kind of my entry point of saying, how can I address kind of these bigger issues kind of trickle down to create better learning environments here. So speaking of funding, um, I do want to talk a little bit about that. You know, in this year's data book, we talk, I talk a little bit about some research around education funding for Michigan schools. And I think we can all agree that every single kid, no matter their background, deserves a learning environment and learning conditions that will help them succeed. So I'm curious to know what have you both seen in terms of resources for kids in schools? Do you feel like your kids or the kids in your community have the resources and the learning conditions to be successful or not?
3: Tamara, let's start with you. So I think that's a loaded question. And I think that it varies widely between school districts and different communities. So I'll start with two, twofold. So I'll start with my own children and then move to the children that I know within the community. So I think with my kids, their school does a very good job of making sure that they have what they need and making sure they have accommodations. So, for example, my oldest daughter, her math teacher noticed, hey, she's doing really good in math, let's bump her up to algebra. So they gave her something that would challenge her more instead of just leaving her in that mediocre math class, whereas my preemie she has some more struggles. She has some learning difficulties, but the school really talked with me and developed a plan to modify some things for her to be able to help her. And then the youngest two are in summer school. They did bridge books. They gave the kids books for the summer and things of that nature. And I know that's not always the case because I've heard from parents seeing their posts of the frustration they have with the school system when they know look my child needs additional supports but there's no one that's willing to listen to me and trying to make accommodations for my child so i think there are things that are going well but i definitely think that there's room for improvement i think that one thing covid has done is it's kind of really brought in a sense some communities together in that old adage it takes a village to raise a child like this year when you see some of these community camps at Baxter, at MLK, the ones that community kids are doing, those are camps that are free to those kids and they're able to go. And the thing I love about those is that they're right in the neighborhood of the kids that need them the most. So they're in walking distance because some parents may want their children to be in a summer program to learn different things, but don't have the transportation or they're working. So I do like that, but I also think that there are some students that struggle and that the schools really need to try to find those solutions to really help help those students. And then we still have, you know, technology issues, those access issues, there's things that are coming down the pipeline, but those are still issues for communities and for students. And I think that as parents, we have to also be open to some communication because there are instances where I may notice I may see a child that is struggling a little bit. And so I'll talk to the parents and say, hey, you know, I noticed that your son is having a little bit of difficulty reading. Have you talked to the school about getting him IAP? Because some parents don't know what they don't know. So I think that whole village, and I think just parents just need to be receptive to like if another mom comes in love or another dad comes in love to say, hey, I noticed XYZ. So I think the community needs to come together too to help one another.
1: Thank you for that. I love how you talk both about kind of what the system is or isn't doing, but also what we as community members are doing, our own resilience, our own brilliance outside of what the system may or may not be doing successfully or not. Uh, That's great. Thank you so much. What about you, Kyle? What, What do you see for kids in your community? Do you feel like they have the resources that they need to be successful in school? What have you noticed?
2: Yeah. I, I just want to second my appreciations for what Tamara was saying in terms of how community showing up for each other. And I think that was really the crux of, of what I was thinking about in terms of response too is, and, and I appreciate the way you framed that, Kelsey, is from a system response. Do kids have what they need to be successful by a dominant Kind of cultural definition of what success looks like. I'm not sure yet, you know. And we saw some big gaps emerge in terms of equitable resource distribution in light of COVID, right? Like accessibility to virtual schools, all that kind of stuff. You know, mental health supports for communities that were going that were for harder hit from from COVID. Like we didn't see targeted responses in that way. So, so from a system response, I. I would say not yet. We, I, I don't think that we're getting the kind of resources that, that we need. But from a community response, I think that we are seeing uh, a resurgence to, to Tamara's point of ways in which communities are showing up and showing up to provide the kind of resources that kids do need. And we saw that from childcare, pools uh, in virtual education to the way in which summer learning is, is happening right now here in, at least here in Grand Rapids and tomorrow named a bunch of great programs that are coming out that are geared towards young people and not just from like an academic achievement point of view either mm-hmm. but like a whole child a holistic approach to the, their child right that honors every aspect of their their being. Um, And I think that's beautiful to see, but I will still say that from a system uh, uh, perspective, I don't think that communities are being resourced equitably or sufficiently to meet all of the needs that exist.
1: Thank you.
0: For weekly updates on what's happening in public policy at the state and federal level, Tune into the league's Facebook live series, yays and nays every Friday at 11 a.m.
1: You know, Kyle, you mentioned our, our schools kind of from your experience. I think tomorrow I'm hearing the same thing that you're not seeing every school and every student having the chance to be in a learning environment that meets their needs. And the data that we talk about in the education section of this year's data book bears that out. Michigan is just one of 16 states that gives less funding to its highest poverty school districts than to its lowest poverty school districts. So what that means is children who are dealing and living with the barriers associated with poverty and those challenges are going to schools that are actually have less resources than students who don't have those challenges going to school. We see that teachers are more than two times more likely to be inexperienced and work outside of their field in those same high poverty school districts and get paid less on average at those schools. And then even greater, over the last decade, over $4.5 billion dollars That's billion with a B, was diverted from K-12 public schools in Michigan to universities and community colleges to help balance the state budget. $4.5 billion that our students were entitled to that they did not have. So I think, you know, your observations, which I consider data, totally are in line with the data, the, the quantitative data, the numbers that are, are in the data book that our schools are, are both uh, not equitably and not adequately funded. Uh, so, so thank you for sharing kind of your experiences in that space. So kind of keeping in line with this idea of education funding, uh, when we look nationally, Michigan overall in education is ranked 41st in the nation. So we are, we are down there towards the bottom. Do you think that funding alone will solve our problems in schools, including low proficiency rates and the racial disparities that we see in outcomes? Is funding alone the answer?
3: I would say absolutely not. There's so many different things that go into thinking about that. I think funding helps and it's a start, but it's not the end all be all. When you think about it, we not only need qualified and dedicated teachers, but even with that, teachers can only do so much. They only have so many hours a day with children that are coming, some are coming from environments that just require more. And so families need support. When you think about it, there needs to be more education on early literacy and just letting parents know that there's simple things that they can do to help their child. I know when COVID first started, you're in different crafting groups and everyone's doing these beautiful educational craft spaces for their children, and it doesn't have to be like that great if you're crafty and you have the time and you can do that. But there's little bitty things that parents can do as simple as having your child help set out silverware count the silverware as you're putting in the dishwasher as you're washing it you're in the supermarket you're like, okay, do you want a green apple or a red apple? How many should we get? So just those little simple things, I think letting parents know, but then also supporting parents as well as their kids get older because they need support too. I know now you have, we learn long division one way and now they want the kids to learn it a whole different way. And then you have a middle schooler <laughs> yes. that's dealing with quadratic functions and you're like, ah! so, you know, families just need to be supported. So I think funding is important, but we really need to, Be able to support the whole family and then be able to target the needs of those families and also just looking at class sizes too. how can teachers truly teach and be impactful with children when they have a class size of 30, you know, and it's just one teacher to all those students so I definitely think funding would help but there's so much more that we have to consider.
1: Right, Ch- children learn in community, they learn in family, school is one of those institutions that's really important, but how do we also, again, you, you spoke to how do we support parents, that two-generational approach, that is part of the wraparound of supporting kids and success across across domains. Kyle, what do you think?
2: I yeah, totally agree with Tamara, absolutely not, funding is not a silver bullet. We don't have a silver bullet in education right now, right, and that's a reality. But at the same time, when schools have been getting money, they haven't always been making the right decisions in terms of, of advancing the interests of students, in my, my point of view, that are, are the most marginalized within their systems, right? And I'll give you a local example. Here in Grand Rapids, we had, we had uh, Homestead Millage passed to increase school funding for our local school district, Grand Rapids Public Schools but the investments that were made were overwhelmingly in schools and that were predominantly white, predominantly lower, uh, a higher um, socioeconomic status. Right. And we're continuing to see a departure of poor black and Latinx students from the district over that course of time. Like what's going on? We got more money, but why is this still happening then? Right. So there's a there's an oversight and control issue as much as there is a funding one. Uh, And that's a lot of what our work has been.
1: So let's kind of keep going on that same vein. Uh, Kyle, you mentioned doing some local education advocacy work. And when I read your bio, it mentions Uh, your use of radical imagination to find solutions to problems outside of dominant ways of thinking and doing. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about what were some of your focus areas when working with those local groups and parents around education advocacy? What did you learn through that experience? And how did this idea of radical imagination play a role in all of that?
2: Yeah, so I, I think when we talk about things like radical imagination, first we think about it as like a superpower. And that's not what I'm, we're talking about here. When I, I think something that's radical feels way different than the norm. So when we talk about radical imaginations, what, what I'm trying to think of in that space is how do we make space for people that are gonna challenge the way, the dominant ways of thinking that currently structure our systems, particularly our education system, right? So one example is, uh, I, I'm just gonna be real frank, like historically our school board has been uh, controlled by um, like industry interest, right? Business interests. You, you know, in order to get elected to the school board, you have to have a certain kind of community standing. You got to be connected. You got to raise money. You got to like do run for, like all of this kind of stuff that requires both social and economic capital. And so certain voices are completely excluded from decision-making processes that determine how your kid gets educated and so uh, one of the things that parents right now are pushing for is to say how do we bring in voices that aren't just these like moneyed, respectable sort of voices that represent our school board not to not and I'm not trying to down on all our school board members and I'm saying this But like, how do we bring like true community voice to the school board, right? That's one example. Another would be even our school board meetings, right? Using sort of Robert's rules where parents only have the chance to offer public comment at the end of a meeting and school board members don't even have to respond. Like that's such an exclusionary process. And so parents are saying like, why can't we have a different way Mm -hmm. of engaging with our elected representatives? And I think those are the kind of radical imaginings that oftentimes we don't even think about. We just assume, oh, yeah, to get to school board, to be a school board member, you got to be like a respectable citizen and that our school board meetings have to be structured in this specific kind of way. And like it just somebody wrote those rules and we don't have to abide by them. We can imagine outside of them. And and that's some of the work that we do is engaging communities to say, what could this look like? How could this look differently in a way that is more representative for you?
1: You know, we have, I think, faced a lot of the same challenges for a very long time. When we look at data, when we look at stories, and we look at outcomes in our education system. Thank you. So Tamara, what about you? Where where has your work focused, and, and what have you learned from it?
3: I think Kyle brings up a good point, that you really do need to have that parent perspective. And if you just save a spot at the end for parents, they may think, what value am I bringing to the table? So I think with the work that I do, we truly value parent input. We have parents on the different work groups that we have that sit on our collaborative, bringing that parent voice, that grassroots change and help change some of those early childhood outcomes in Kent County. So our work, we're hoping to get back into in-person coalition meetings this fall. And those were always nice because providing family dinner time. You know, sometimes you have families that someone's eating here or they're eating at a different time, but our coalition meetings gave families a time to come together, quality time to sit, break bread and talk about their day and interact with other families too. So that's part of our work. But then also our parent cafes, being able to have parents come together talk with one another, support one another, continue to strengthen that family structure. And they've been so impactful to our families. We even had one parent say, I feel more confident to care for my family after coming to the parent cafe. Some of them, that's their adult time, especially when it's a cafe at 8.30 at night, once the kids are to bed, they get to meet with their virtual friends and really just support one another. And then just having our parent support stations where we're out in the community, we're helping to connect families to resources. And not just telling them about resources. We have families, if we see a mom with a two-year-old, we may say, hey, have you heard of home visiting? And if they haven't, we're able to go through and connect them to a home visiting program. Also, just some of the fun events that we've done, we had a family fun night Friday. And in that, parents were able to come on Zoom. We provided everything they needed for this family fun night. 48% of them said that weekly they provide time for family fun. After our event, and we did our post survey, 73% of our survey participants said they were now going to carve out weekly Mm -hmm. family time. Also, practicing daily self-care, we had a meeting where we did some self-care. 4.3% said that they did it daily. Afterwards, 24% said they were going to do it. So I think a lot of our work is very impactful in supporting families and also just continuing to raise them up as leaders, like with our community organizing and family issues training, We've had two parents that have gone through that training and now are Kofi trained facilitators that will be facilitating our next Kofi training. So I think our work has been impactful in raising that parent voice and just helping them to truly see that leadership that they possess as parents. Amazing. Congrats
1: on all that work. You know, parents are the the crux of a, of a family, right? Caregivers are. So thank you for all that work that you're doing, supporting uh, families so that they can better support their kids right uh, so this was great you know we've kind of covered quite a bit and i want to you know as we close both thank you both so much education is a huge issue uh would have you so eloquently stated it is not just a school issue it is a community challenge of educating our young people and certainly one that needs our collective voice and our collective action but we know that Everyone, especially parents, already have a ton on their plates. We talked about this in our opening. There is a lot to do just on a day-to-day to make it, to run a home, and to hopefully do things like self-care and rest, like you're encouraging your families to do tomorrow. So, you know, as we close, I would love for you both to share some reflections on, you know, what next step would you offer to anyone listening? tomorrow. let's start with you.
3: I would say ultimately, realistically, just to be able to learn what they can and understand and know what they can and cannot handle when it comes to participating in something, because we know that parents are busy. I would encourage them to join, to listen to these types of podcasts or to join coalitions so that they can help impact change and not to be afraid to speak up, to know that they are not just a parent. Parents are so much more than that, and they have the ability and power to impact change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I ask a
1: follow up? Because, you know, we're talking about the importance of centering parent voice in a lot of these conversations around education and also recognizing in the same breath that parents are stretched. So I I can I can see some pushback from organizations or school boards to say, well, how do we how do we bring in parent voice when parents are already so stretched? right? And their time, the demands on their time are so great. What might you use as a parent and as advocates, what might you offer? What might you, how might you respond to kind of that challenge or that concern?
2: Pay them, pay them for their time, please just give them some money so that they can come in and offer you their expertise. Y'all getting paid for your expert wisdom. So let them come in and get some money for their expert wisdom too.
3: Absolutely. That is so true, Kyle, because parents are experts and they deserve compensation as well. Thank you for bringing that up.
1: Yeah, thank you. So, Kyle, what to you feels realistic for parents and community members when it comes to advocacy and what would be the next step you might offer to folks who
2: are listening? Yeah, My first thing is just to parents would be to say, take care of yourselves. You know, I I think, Tamara, some of the work that you're doing around, you know, sort of self-care and stuff like that, and it's so, so important. You cannot advocate well for your children if you are not well. To acknowledge that we can only go so far on our own and that our power really comes from a collective voice. I think that's a big one. So uh, practically, what does that mean? It means talking with the other parents in your kid's classroom, you know, checking in with other folks, even your neighbors about their experiences with kids, you know, And, and casting a broader net. Don't just be thinking about your kid, be thinking about the other kids in your kid's classroom.
0: Thank you so much. Laura? Wow. So there were so many great insights in that conversation and my pen is running out of ink over here from taking notes for myself as a mom and as a professional, just so many solid bits of wisdom. So Kyle and Tamara, I really appreciate you being on today, having this conversation with Kelsey. Uh, I hope you'll come back and join us again. Kelsey, I know that you are ready to dig in a lot deeper on the policy side of all of this and, and that your work in the coming weeks and months are gonna is really going to center around this work. So could you take just a moment right now to tell us a little bit more about some of the policy recommendations that you've made through Kids Count uh, and how you really want to see things change through policy?
1: So... You know, I think Tamara and Kyle laid out a lot of really great next steps and kind of call to actions for parents who want to advocate on all levels, locally, within their classrooms, within their families, locally, kind of some really clear things that anyone can have access to and do. The, The policy recommendations outlined in the data book that flow from kind of the data analysis that we did focus on a state level. And particularly around the state budget, how can we be better stewards of our dollars to invest into our priorities, which should be our kids and our families and certainly our schools. So I have four main policy recommendations in the education domain in this year's data book, when we think about learning learning is a continuum it does not start when kids enter kindergarten it starts well before that and tomorrow does a lot of that work kind of that zero through five age group and so you know i think for sure one thing that we must do is to expand access to early learning early learning includes preschool but it also includes childcare. and right now Child care is unaffordable for most Michigan families, and if it is not unaffordable, in many instances, it is unavailable. And so the, the data book outlines some recommendations around increasing eligibility thresholds for child care subsidies so that more families can access them, but then to also increase payments to child care providers to um, help stimulate availability and access for families. If we continue along the learning continuum, let's talk about K-12. So I mentioned in today's podcast and conversation that Michigan is one of just 16 states that provides less funding to its highest poverty districts than to its lowest poverty districts. And so we know that when schools are not equitably funded, learning environments and student outcomes suffer. And we see today that less than half of third graders can read on grade level and half of eighth graders can do math on grade levels in Michigan. So data bears out that the learning conditions that we currently have are not supporting students in the way that they need. And so our recommendation here is to adopt uh, what we call a weighted school funding formula. We should fund schools based off of both school and community need to make sure that no matter what where a kid come from, um, if they come from a household that is low income and face challenges there, if English is not their first language, if they have a disability, whatever condition they're in, they have the resources that they need at school to meet their needs so that they can be successful. So that's number two. Number three is to fund K-12 schools as intended. I mentioned earlier that $4.5 billion, billion with a B, was diverted from public K-12 schools in Michigan from 2010 to 2019 in order to help balance the state budget by paying, by diverting that money to universities and community colleges. So our recommendation is to use the money in the state school aid fund solely for K-12 education as has been done prior to 2009. So expand access to early learning, fund schools based off of student need, fund K-12 schools as intended. And the last policy recommendation is to keep students in school. Um, When we look at chronic absenteeism rates, In Michigan, Michigan has a third highest rate of fourth grade chronic absenteeism in the country, and that has increased over the last few years. Students who are economically disadvantaged and students who are homeless are more likely to be chronically absent, right? And so chronic absenteeism really is economic security issue. It's a housing issue. And so as a state, as communities, as counties, we really need to invest in increasing economic security for families, as well as investing in affordable housing and opportunity-rich communities. And the data book also outlines some policy recommendations related to economic security as well. So those are four policy recommendations that stems from this year's data, this year's data book that on a state level, we believe will help us be better stewards of our dollars, invest in schools, invest in families, invest in kids. And we know that we will see the outcomes. Uh, kids will benefit. And we believe that the data, both through parent stories, family story, as well as things like proficiency rates will
0: also increase. Thank you so much, Kelsey, for walking us through those. And I know that everybody listening can head over to www.mlpp.org to take a look at the, the data book, which is beautiful, by the way, some really great illustrations are included from a Local artist, if you want to give her a yeah. shout out right now. Yeah, shout
1: out, dude. Shout out to Jessica Chala. She is Grand Rapids based. She is a software engineer, a business owner, and a community advocate. And she also is an illustrator. And so she illustrated every single one of the images that are in the data book so that they could be diverse, they could be inclusive, and show families just doing family things, everything from reading books together to in the grocery store. And so we really thank her for her work and and super big shout out to her.
0: That's great. Well, congratulations to you, Kelsey, on launching such a a powerful project. Thanks again to Mm -hmm. Kyle and Tamara for being here today. Thank you. Thank Uh, you. Thank you so much for being part of Wonk Life Balance. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Wonk Life Balance. To learn more about what the Michigan League for Public Policy is working on, visit www.mlpp.org.